When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I mean by the call is the ability of a traditional singer or a traditional music to open a window in your heart. A window which will allow you to breathe in, to suck in, to draw in the essence of the music that person is playing so that it can change the chemistry of your mind, so that it can lift you, so that it can bring the pure, spiritual, beautiful side of your head away from all the torment of the normal day's life. It can bring that right up to the fore and let you wallow and swim in that pleasure. That is what I know as the call. Once you get a belt between the eyes of something beautiful, for a moment, you are smitten forever. Tommy Potts, Joe Cooley, Seamus Ennis. All you need is a moment, and that is the way this life is, if you look at it. All we need is a moment of truth, to look through that window into the essence of things, into the eternal into the world of the spirit. There was always music in my house in the Turnpike Road in Ennis. Um, late 40s, early 50s. Musicians such as Joe Cooley and such as Paddy O'Brien from Nina and such as Felix Storm, Paddy Canny, Peter Lachlan from Kilmele, Willie Clancy from Milltown Malbay, Martin Talty. People like that would come to the house unannounced and they would sit down, they would have tea and they would play. And it was a wonderful experience at the time because the early 50s was a time of trauma for Irish people and especially for young people because uh, the Taliban were in power. The Catholic Church really uh, sat on everybody of all ages at that time, whether it was the local curate or whether it was the annual visit of the Redemptorist Order, who went about frightening the living life out of everybody, young and old. So the music of a man like Joe Cooley literally hit one like an intravenous drug, and it lifted one out of that awful, damp sense of fear and guilt that the church induced in people at the time. And it wasn't only the church, 
but the school as well. I remember nothing but fear in my school, primary school and secondary school. There was a lot of corporal punishment. And at the time, I was interested in music, but there was a certain guilt about being a musician. There was a sense of shame about it. Because although there were wonderful people in Ennis from the surrounding, uh, the surrounding townlands, like my own people from Kilmele, from Connolly, and Kilfenora and Dennis Diamond and all those wonderful places like Crosheen with their own lovely accents. There was an aspect to Ennis which I found uh, hostile. Uh, the business class in Ennis seemed to me to have no time for anything Irish. And during my youth playing, learning tunes and that, I always felt an outsider. Maybe it was partly my own fault. But that resulted in a fear of playing in public, which stayed with me until two years ago. I'm 66 now. I had a fear of going on stage until, as I say, two years ago. It was an irrational fear, a fear something would happen. And I think it goes back to that awful time I had in school, no money for school fees. I remember studying for my leaving cert, having to go out and borrow a book and stand up by the side of the road, um, reading and absorbing as much as I could before I gave the book back. And I remember the principal of the brother's school, Brother Kennedy, coming up to me and putting his hand out right in front of my face and saying, Will Antarget the God? This was the two pounds, five shillings, I think it was, for the quarterly, the quarterly fee at the Christian Brothers Schools in Ennis. And I remember saying, Needle. And I remember the shame of it. The shame of not having the money. Here is where the great Joe Cooley was first of all found in Ennis by people who were mad about traditional music. There where that Ennis electrical shop is was Coffee's Feather Merchants and Cooley had a bedroom overhead that and in summer evenings he would play in his room and the music would come right across the road to Mick Fitzgerald's pub 
where my father and two brothers worked renovating that building. My father was a building contractor. So after hearing that music for two or three evenings, they brought him to my house in the Turnpike, and he became a regular visitor, and he lifted our hearts every time he came, and indeed lifted the hearts of everybody else who met him. That was 1949-1950, before he emigrated to America. But he was a force, an explosive musical force in our life at the time. That when a musician like that came around, it literally punched its way into the centre of your being. And you were never the same again as a person. If you like, it was a view through a window into heaven. At a time when we were being taught that purity was something in your soul which you had to preserve and you had to tell your sins in confession and you had to be a craw thumper and on summer evenings when others were out playing you were expected to be in the church at benediction and being a good holy little boy. Do you know them, sir? They have been in please. I don't. Are you going to go two and two? First part twice, second part twice. And then change, okay. No, keep going. So you don't have to count for anyway. Oh, yeah, okay. You just search. Okay, okay. 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 ready? Do you know that tune? Say there for me. Gather his products, Anthony. Can you remember the tune Sarah and I played before? I'd say she's forgotten it. Um, just, I was telling people about the tune Sarah and I played. I'd say she's not forgotten. Can you remember the tune, Anthony? I can't remember. It was a jig, and it was that one kind of.
Do you remember Bill Malley, Mary? Well, Bill is dead 21 years. And I suppose up to the time, shortly before he died, he played music, but a lot went with him. A lot went with, with the people of his of his kind. There's, there is no way that you can say that the music is the same today or the people are the same. People don't even think like that today. There's no, it's all so fast and furious now. There's no comparison. I don't think we'll ever hear it again. No, we won't. Uh, the passage of time, uh, that's one thing that has distressed me for a long time. I have known some wonderful musicians such as Bill O'Malley and Joe mm -hmm. Barn. And um, with everyone that has passed, you've had a vacuum. And that vacuum has never been filled. I think we can't expect people to replace the Bill Malleys and the Joe Bands of this world uh, because they played their music to a different life. Life was much, it was a much slower pace. They took the time to play music. They gave the time to their music. For us today, we're fitting it in. We're fitting it into our timetable in the day. We have to make the time to play a tune. They didn't. They, they played music and they worked their life around it. And I think it was very evident in their music. You could hear the relaxation in their music. They had a lovely rhythm. I often felt uh, their music was an interior music. It was a bit like meditation, <laughs> where you have a conversation with yourself as distinct from the modern traditional musician mm. who goes on stage uh, to sell CDs yeah. and to make an impression mm. and to be popular and for everybody to love him or her. Yeah. It's a totally different world. And it's also a faster world. I suppose the one thing, when you listen to, if you listen back to Bill's music and to Joe's music, you feel like dancing to it. Yeah. Would you agree to that? That's you came in, the new lane. I came in the new lane. I came in the new lane. I came in the new lane. I came I came in, yeah, it's okay, I don't know, mate. You know, why didn't you finish that cross in there and outside the town? Holly Bay. I came in there, huh? I came in for the sooner and got it, and cut me. Turnpike Road, Ennis, number two, just near the corner from where the Limerick Road takes us into Ennis. We're outside what used to be my house. It is now a business. The entire turnpike has changed from a very pretty road of single-storey cottages, many of them thatched, most of them having half doors. Their owners wearing shawls are working clothes and caps. I remember people like Mrs. Brodie, a low-sized woman in her 60s, I suppose, that time. She wore a black shawl, small, darkish, angular face. I thought I'd never seen anything so beautiful and at the same time so mysterious and slightly frightening. There was a triangular quality where the shawl came to the head and it spread out, especially the traveller women and men who came to our house in the turnpike. Martin Faulkner, 
and his wife Noni Faulkner. Noni wore a shawl, as I say. She used to come into our kitchen. She'd put one foot on the step of the stairs, and she would take my mother's concertina and she'd play a few tunes for my mother in the middle of the day. She'd sit down then and she'd have a cup of tea. You had the two Duns, Michael and Christy Dunn, banjo and fiddle. I remember them playing the Broken Pledge. And I remember Christy, the tall one, he had a piece of coat hanger around the neck of the banjo from which hung a dirty grey bag and there would be a lot of coins in the bag. And I remember standing enthralled listening to them playing the Broken Pledge. It was the most beautiful first live sound of traditional music I had heard. I remember coming out of my front door to school of a fair day morning. The street was full of horses, blockers, travellers, farmers. The smell of urine and the streets covered in horse dung. And I remember the animals, the heat rising from them, their nostrils, the farmers, the wonderful accents, people from Krasheen, from Kilmele, from Kilfenora, from all over Clare. I remember picking my way through the dung uh, on my way to school and being excited. And of course, those were the people who understood traditional music. Those were the people from, from those were the people for whom Johnny Doran, the great piper, played. And I only remember seeing him once in Ennis, and he had a small little wooden stand for his left leg. He stood up on the side of the street and he played the pipes and it was like a call. It was a call from another world. I think it was... Um, there were two of them and the second was called Johnny's Wedding. And I think the third selection was a tune by Tommy Potts, which he called A Dissertation on the Drunken Sailor. Was that just Tommy Potts' version of the Drunken Sailor? Yes, yes. Did you meet him around that time as well? Well, I had met Tommy Potts in Ennis um, round about 1950 uh, through the good offices of Sean Reid, he brought Tommy Potts to my house one winter's evening, but he was the most impressive-looking man I had ever met. He was tall, he had black hair, and he had black burning eyes and long fingers. And when he played the fiddle, you were transported. I had never, ever heard a fiddle played like that. It was full, it was full of passion, and full of the energy of transportation. The notes he made on the fiddle for a start were totally pure. The tone he generated out of the fiddle 
literally cut into your spirit like an acetylene torch. It wasn't twee and soft and beautiful and tender. It cut into your spirit and it lifted you. Now, on top of that, he was a superb player. His phrasing and the way he handled the tune was wonderful. And once you heard Tommy, it went into your spirit and you never you never got away from it. He was always in your mind. Now remember, Potts was a man who didn't go out and play in public. And even in the 60s, when traditional music was being, if you like, uh, made popular, or what they call traditional music, uh, Tommy was still a recluse. He stayed at home, he painted in watercolours, and he would play only for those who came to his house. Or he would occasionally come to the Four Seasons Bar, um, when John Kelly was holding court at the time, uh, in the 70s and 80s. And um, being in Tommy Potts's company was always a revelation. And when he played, he actually moulded his body around the fiddle. The head, the black hair, the black burning eyes, olive skin bent over the fiddle and the fingers were incredibly long and to see his hands working there was there was an incredible visual logic I used to lock my eyes from his fingers and his thumb and where the neck of the fiddle sat between his thumb and his forefinger he would rotate for certain movements in the fiddle he would rotate uh, around the neck of the fiddle and you could see the dust of the rosin up along the bow and I often felt that I could imagine specks of rosin flying off the bow and landing in the fiddle and you know I would imagine notes flying off the strings and flying into my psyche and into my spirit. But we were talking about rhythm earlier and would you come over here, would you bring your chair over here Isa? Uh, just come over here near Mary myself. Do you remember Tommy Potts coming to our house? I, very, uh, I barely remember this man coming in. And um, my father taught, taught was a friend of mine, which is, and he put the two of us out. We were talking. <laughs> and uh, that's all I remember of that man. Do you remember how I started playing? I, I, I'm not sure, Renton. I think it was in a piano cart in. Was it Joe? Yeah. It was a Joe lifted in. Joe Cooley, Joe yes. Cooley lifted in, yeah. But after that, I, I don't remember much after that. Do you remember my mother took the instrument away after a while? Sean Reed loaded me in an accordion and after a week or so it was a bit noisy and uh, she took it away and yeah. sent it back. Do you remember that? I don't, Anthony, I don't. I don't. But the, the, my father, he, he was very, he was very, um, um, he had a great wish and he was a lovely singer. He used to sing all the old songs, you know, the Dear Irish Boy and all those. 
And I used to sing it with him and it, it says, if you have the nail, you have nothing. He'd stop me, you know, and uh, it was great. And there were lovely set dancers, the two of them. Were they? They were, oh, they were, they, 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 that square you do them. My father and mother. And my father and mother. I didn't know that. Yes, all they were beautiful set dancers. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And they'd kill you if you went fast, you know, lovely slow music. Where did you see them dance? Actually, they used to dance out at Minnie's every Sunday. They'd, be, they'd have the gramophone on and after the dinner out at Minnie's. My aunts? Yeah. And the neighbours had come and, and do you remember the big flag in front of Minnie's open heart? I do. There was one flag that, that was just the room that I was sit there and they wouldn't pass that flag and they dance gorgeous music, dead slow, beautifully. We were all great set dancers. We were great times. I learned a lot from my parents. Do you remember the problems I had at school after being beaten up by brothers and that? I do. I remember you coming home one day and you asked for uh, one and sixpence or something. You were a mop of coals. There were seven, eight and thirty. And they, they went down they got their hair chopped off. But the brother used to catch them by the layout of the seat. Yeah. The nuns were the same that killed us. I seem to be able to handle the knife and fork when I come home to my dinner. My hands used to be slapping me. My they, God. They killed us. They said they were, they were, they were. I don't know where they are now. I often think about them. Do you remember the time you were propositioned? by a priest to become his housekeeper. I do. Ah, that was... He's dead. He's dead a long time. I, I suppose he thought that being a priest, that he just, he just, I suppose, took a fancy, but Give me her time for two years, like you know, he came back from England several times. I come back every three and four weeks. But it took me two years to get rid of him, like you know. And what was his plan? Was he a young man? He was a beautiful young man, he was a very good looking man, he was a gorgeous looking fellow. Quite a young fellow. But he went back to England anyway after he stopped coming after that. He died young enough to, I think he died of cancer or something. But what did he want at her? Well, he just wanted me, like, you know, he wanted, to, he wanted me, he wanted me, really. And his idea was that he'd bring me back to England, you know, as his housekeeper, like, you know, and that would cover everything, really. You know, I'd pop that on too, like, you know. But I didn't have any of it. So that finished it, but it took two years. When everything failed, he said that if he couldn't have me, nobody would. 
said, oh, please, she's got to be a peanut butter. And that was the next I saw it. That was after two years. So. But that's the way it was that time, I think. They frightened little girls, like, you know, and they, they were afraid of them. They thought if they didn't do what they were told, that, you know. But I was strong enough, and I had no guidance. I had no one to talk to. I had, no, I had nobody to turn to, but I fought with myself. That I'm very proud of. There's no harm that time has gone, and you know, I'm glad it's gone, and the children today, you know, at least they can talk. And they can. We were afraid, we were afraid of our parents. We, so. They were such afraid of the priests, I suppose, that the clergy and the religion, because. That was life, that time, it was all gone on. Are you glad? Oh, I am. Oh, God, I am. Oh, God, I am. I am glad. Life was tough. It was tough. You, you, if you met, which you met them very often, and then it was packed with priests and the bishops, and you just got off the path, you stepped off the path. You, did, you didn't, you just didn't pass them and say, how are you? You just uh, stepped off the path and kept them on. I had an experience which has stayed with me since. A brother was teaching us science, and at some point during the lesson, he said, Come out here, Sonny. He was looking towards me and I was quiet and nervous and shy and interested in music. I didn't know what he meant. And one of the boys kind of nudged me and said, he means you. And he said, take off your glasses, Sonny. I took off my glasses and he said, Put your glasses on the table there, Sonny. I did it. Stand up straight, Sonny. He drew out and he hit me with his open palm full force across one side, not of my face, but of my head. And I remember the pain went right right into the center of my head, through my ear. It was explosive. I was told afterwards, I remember rocking motions separated by several seconds. I was told later that he hit me a total of six times, three with each hand, on each side of the head. Each was an explosion. Only the first hurt, but it was a hurt like I had never experienced before. And he then said to me, sit down, Sonny. I had to be helped back to my seat. And I remember I sat down and something happened to me I felt a coldness of hatred, a 
calm coldness, as if my entire being had slowed down to nothing. It was as if I was looking at myself in from outside. It was ice cold, it was cutting, and it was pure hatred. Now, I was 13. My father had died only a short time before that. I had never experienced anything like that. But immediately the solution came to me. I decided I was going to shoot him stone dead that evening because I knew he went for an evening walk past my house in the turnpike. But I went home and I had a bit to eat. I went upstairs and I loaded my father's BSA double-barrel shotgun and I remember he always had a bottle of three-in-one oil and a pull-through and a piece of cotton and I oiled both barrels so that when I fired there would be a secondary explosion. I had a bit of an interest in science and I literally wanted to burn him to death as I shot him. So I raised the lower window, I put two pillows and I made a, a, a stand for the weapon. I was determined to kill him stone dead that evening. I would have done it, but he did not pass. And I remember the hatred. And to this day, I am sorry I didn't do it. I am sorry he never came along, but I would have done it. I had planned to kill him stone dead. To this day, when I go on stage, when I talk to somebody, I have a shake in my head. And that's where it originated, that day. That day of brutality, of savagery. I can never forget, and I can never forgive him. Sarka, wonderful, wonderful. What name have you on that? Gallagher's Fox. is right, yes. Gallagher's Fox. So many of those people just vanished off the face of the earth. And for me, 
not one of their places has been filled. You get a glimpse for a moment into that life, into that art, into that greatness. And it is only a moment, whether it is two seconds or whether it is two years, it is only a moment in the infinity of time. And then they're gone and one is left alone, if you like. And this aloneness is something that has been with me all my life, this being an outsider, being a spectator, if you like, at life's gifts and not always being able to partake, not always being able to sit at the table, to pour the glass of wine and heal the emptiness and cure the loneliness. But that's it. What do you think you've missed? What I have missed is failing so often to live the moment having been in the company of great people and not knowing at the time that one day they would be gone. The ones I didn't want, how I wished I had them now. And that's what poor Peter Mulligan used to say, another wonderful musician from Mohill. I knew Peter in Dublin in the mid-60s and... I loved his music, I loved his flow of speech and the great tunes he had like the flower of the flock and uh, again Peter just vanished just uh, went from the face of the earth but in the in the depression I always had in life uh, most of my time I was a little bit down um, feeling sad, if you like. Um, people might call it depression. Um, maybe it's a handy term, but to me it meant just being that bit, one or two degrees below the norm. But then when one heard something wonderful, you jumped up and life changed and life became enhanced and your spirit came out and that's where Potts, Cooley, Ennis and those people. I was thirsty and they gave me to drink. I was hungry and they gave me to eat. I was depressed and they rocketed me up. And that is why I feel music is the greatest drug of all. It can change your perception. It changes the chemistry of the mind. The whole world, the whole world looks brighter and for that I will be always grateful, always in awe and always thanking Mother Nature for having put those great men in my path. As Peter Mulligan used to say, 
in my old walks of life. In my old walks of life. That's the way Peter put it. In my old walks of life. Thank you.